Hello, and welcome to How I Fixed It, a podcast where we cut the noise and learn step-for-step strategies entrepreneurs use to grow. My name is Emily, and today I'm excited to be joined by Julie Cole, one of the co-founders of Mabel's Labels. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. My name is Julie Cole. I'm the co-founder of Mabel's Labels. I'm a parenting blogger and I'm a mom of six. I started Mabel's Labels about, oh gosh, 18 years ago now. Um, you, Emily, was probably, you were probably one of my first customers. And, uh, <laughs> and basically, I started with three other women. And we started this company for a couple of reasons. I always tell people when they're about to start something, they should know why the heck they're gonna do it. And I had two whys. The first why was there was a product missing from the market. Uh, we, I had small children and my co-founders had small children and we were using like permanent marker and masking tape and putting that on bottles and sippy cups and Tupperware and those sorts of things. And we just thought we could do better than that. We thought there'd be a product out there, that a, a great labeling product and there wasn't. So we wanted to create a dishwasher microwave safe label for all the stuff kids lose. So that was the first reason, that being the product missing from the market. The second reason, at that time, my eldest child had just turned three and he was diagnosed with autism. And I didn't think that the traditional workforce was going to set, like, be super effective for my family at that point because I really wanted to be able to you know, set up a really great therapy program for him, be a strong advocate. And although he would only just turned three, he already had two younger sisters. So it was a busy, it was a busy household anyway. Um, And I always joke about how, how I'm a recovered lawyer. And I just, like I said, I just didn't think that that lifestyle was going to suit my family's changing needs. So at that point I said to my co-founders, guys, you know what, we've had this great idea. I need to make a shift in my life. What do we say? Should we launch this label company? And we did, and we never looked back. And that's 18 years ago. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, I, I've been using your labels for a very long time. So uh, in first grade, I had a lunchbox. We put a label <laughs> on it. It was one of your labels, and it's been on there ever since. And I can't say that I necessarily was super careful with the lunchbox. It's been balls. <laughs> um, we've... Yeah, it's <laughs> you know what they are durable. They are durable. We make that promise to our customers, and and I can tell you, like, and that was the thing too, Emily. Like, we really knew our market of moms. We knew that they wanted um, they wanted something super durable, but they also wanted something cute and personalized. So, I mean, little Emily could go on there and say, "Oh, I want the princess," or "I want the cowboy," or "I want the cow," or whatever. You could pick a little icon that spoke to you, pick a color palette, and then and have it highly personalized. So. It was really fun to do something personalized, but it also worked. And that was our, that was our brand promise that, and, and it does, like you said, like, you know, you were knocking that lunchbox around, you weren't particularly careful. And I know like I've got my six children who are all little product testers and I, for fun, like put one, my eldest son is named Mac and I had in his first little pair of soccer cleats, I had Mac uh, shoe labels. And then I 
put them on my daughter Posey and then on another kid and another kid. It's gone through all six kids and those labels are those shoe labels are still there. And 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 you know what? Shoes are stinky, sweaty places. So yeah. <laughs> we can really stand by these products. And then of course, as the um you know, as the years passed, we started with just this one, we called it our sticky label, which was the dishwasher microwave safe uh, label. But then, you know, we got into the shoe labels and the clothing labels originally an iron on, but now like peel and stick for the tags. And we actually just launched last year, a name stamp. So you can actually stamp directly on the clothing, which parents of course love. And you know what? We moms are busy. We don't have time to be doing things like sewing labels into things. And so the, the peel and stick's been really handy. And then also we've gotten into, you know, a lot of medical labels and allergy alerts. And so we have, we have quite a few products and then combination packs. So like, Hey, my kid's going to day camp. You just go to mableslabels.com, look at the day camp. Be like, yeah, that should do me or overnight camp or kindergarten pack or blah, blah. You know, like we have all these different ones, like a newborn pack. So when people, we try to take the guesswork out and, and give a little bit of variety with our combo packs. Yeah. Um, I did want to talk about uh, the origin of Mabel's labels a little bit more. And yeah. one of the things that's been on my mind a bit is why Mabel? Um, ah, that's a really good question. And I get asked it a lot and it's not a very exciting answer, I'm afraid. So we ended up calling it Mabel's labels for a couple of reasons. It was, it was because of the branding and we, we wanted to have this like feisty personify brand and, you know, our little girl, Mabel, she's fun and innovative and feisty and just like us. And that's what we wanted the brand to represent. And quite honestly, like Mabel's labels, it's catchy. We wanted something people would remember and it rhymed and it, and it worked. So that's how we ended up coming up with the name Mabel's labels, but it's, it's really not that exciting. I've got actually a story I've kind of made up that I would like to start saying is the real one. And it's that when I was a kid, I had a cat named Mabel and it would take off into the neighborhood for days, but it would always come home just like your labeled things will. If you're, if it has a Mabel's labels on it, it might disappear, but it's always going to find its way home. But the truth is, I never had a cat named Mabel. <laughs> but isn't it a good story? <laughs> it is a good story, yeah. You could always we say, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so that was how that was how we got the got the name, and it did really it did really work. And we have been very fierce about our brand ever since. You know, like we we stick with our brand promise. We've we've created a wonderful community. Um, we have over two hundred thousand Facebook fans. I've been blogging for fifteen years, and I don't blog about labels. I blog about you know being a mom with six kids, running a business, having a child with autism, having a queer child, like all of the things. Like we're just very transparent. We're very open. And that's because, you know, that's what's fun about our business is the the community, right? Like I've met your mom at blogging conferences and, you know, I, I love connecting with influencers and, and bloggers and moms and, and, and just being a part of this really wonderful community. I would say that one of the most um, important things, so I, 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 I'm not a marketer, but um, I do think it's important that businesses, uh, reach out and connect with their audience. And I think that's very important that you share those stories and tell people that you understand what it's like to be a mom and how, 
how, what it's like to raise children. Um, Emily, you're absolutely right. I mean, you may not be a marketer, but you've got that 100% right. And that's because like, particularly with the mom market, like we don't, moms don't want to buy from nameless, faceless brands. They want to feel connected to the brands. So that's why I think it is important for, you know, CEOs. It's kind of like that notion of the celebrity CEO. You've got to come out from behind and, and be, be visible because if you're visible, you're credible. And if you're credible, people buy from you. So it's good for your bottom line as well. So you're, you're absolutely right. There's got to be something personal. And I know the mom market really, really insists upon it. They want to see their brands kind of out there and, and, and they want to, they want to feel a part of the community. And that's why creating the Mabelhood and that online community was such, such an important thing for us to do. Definitely. Yeah. Were there any challenges with creating this, this amazing community that you have? Well, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I'll tell, I'll talk a little bit about the challenges of starting the business. And I mean, um, I'll talk about two. I mean, obviously there are hundreds of challenges when you're starting business. Actually, I'm going to see, I'm probably just going to keep going because there's lots. I think one thing I think for anybody listening, who's an entrepreneur or thinking about starting a company, I think it gets romanticized. I think people romanticize the idea of being an entrepreneur and, you know, you think, oh, it's going to be flexible or I can go to the park with my kids. And, and yes, there is some flexibility involved, but I always say flexibility doesn't get your work done for you. So yes, I could go to the park with my kids in the afternoon, but I was on my laptop at midnight. So, you know, there is this notion that that it's this really, rom- I, I just say it's romanticized because at the end of the day, I was in a basement make a label for years before I got myself a paycheck. So there was nothing glamorous about putting a bunch of kids to bed, going into a basement, running machines, and then, you know, licking stamps and getting them all out in the mail and getting up at 6 a.m. and doing the whole thing again. It was, it was a lot of hard work. So, yeah. I would say that is one of the early challenges that you leave your paying job and you don't get holidays. You don't have date night. You don't do anything. You just do your, your side hustle, right? Until the moment that you can, can give it up. So that certainly is, is a challenge. Um, I think for us to, uh, having four partners. So it's a big, that's a big group, right? Like a a big partner group. Um, there were advantages and disadvantages. The advantage, for sure, it contributed to our early growth. We had four really, you know, smart, different brains coming to the table, you know, and we had different careers. You know, I came from law, one came from finance, one came from graphics, and one was a teacher. So we had all these different skills and talents and also allowed, allowed us to divide and conquer. You know, I could worry about getting out press releases while somebody could do product research and material research and one person could go deal with the bank. And do, so I feel... I. I really feel for my solo entrepreneur friends because they have to do it all themselves. They can't assign things out to other people. So I think that was really helpful. But along with having four very different bright brains at the table, you have four very bright opinionated brains at the table. So, you know, we did have lots of like feisty conversations around that, that boardroom table, but you know, we just had to keep working on our communication skills, figure out how, each other best communicates and how information lands and how they process information. And when we got it wrong, we just said, okay, we're practicing. We'll get it better next time. And we had to be careful because we're all related because one's my sister and two were friends from university and one married my brother and one married my young uncle. So we wanted, you know, we had to be able to make sure we could leave the boardroom table and say, are you bringing the potatoes to Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow? You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, the big partnership was definitely a 
challenge. Um, I think the third challenge I'll mention, which actually didn't end up being such a big issue, but was that we were bringing a new product to the market. So often when you do this, you need to actually educate your market that they need your product. Right. Yeah. You know, so, um, so the, the thing was for us where we were lucky, like at first I remember doing a baby show and a dad being like, Oh, I can just print some labels off my computer. And I'm like, yeah, you go and try that. You go try that smart guy. You'll be back here because you can't, you can't not durable dishwasher microwave safe labels. Like we were making, we knew like you couldn't do that. We did product testing for, you know, years. So, um, there was that having to teach the market that they needed us. The thing was though, like Emily, this was the interesting thing. Once people saw the product out there, out in the wild, they were like, where did you get those? And, you know, moms, we talk about products we love, like it's our full-time job. And word you, know, <laughs> word, you know, it. you call it word of mouth, I call it word of mom. Like <laughs> the moms, it's like the old, she told two friends and she told two friends and she told two friends. So it was funny because whenever we'd get like a media hit, we'd see a spike in sales and then it would go quiet. And then two weeks later, we'd get a second spike. And that was when all the labels from the first spike were out there in the wild and in the daycares and in the schools. And people would be like, where did you get that? So we always had a small, slightly smaller second spike after the first spike. And that was, that was the word of mouth and, and seeing the label. So once people saw them and, and it just, and it was just a product that made sense and moms, you know, love really practical products. So it really spoke to mom. So it, it is always a challenge when you're bringing something new to the market, but we certainly had the advantage of it just made a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, when you were, when you were talking about, you were talking about making labels in your basement. So how did you go about doing that? Like, did you have to, how did you research the materials right. and how to make it and then be able to streamline that? Yeah, that's a great question, Emily. So, um, we did a lot of research. We did a lot of, and it's funny. And, you know, with the, the machinery that we used originally, um, and the material that we used, um, was used for an entirely different purpose to what we're using it for. So we got very creative and we tried different things. We did a lot of testing on different equipment. We were driving all over and, and eventually this, this, uh, the machinery that we were using and the product that we were using to make the labels, it had the durability and the stick that we wanted. So that's what we went with. And, um, and uh, it, it's quite funny because the guy who like who we got the equipment from, like leased it from originally and was getting the material from, he used to talk about these, I got these four moms in a basement maple, making labels with this stuff. And eventually we're like, stop telling people, <laughs> non-disclosure agreement, please, because it was just used for something entirely different. And I, I tell you what it was, but I won't because that's intellectual property. <laughs> Big classified information, big secrets. Yeah. So, uh, so that's, that's what it was. It was just a lot of research, a lot of research and a lot of testing. How many different places do you think you went to during that entire process? And uh, what would you say to someone who maybe is getting discouraged by the amount of time that it's taking to get some? Yeah. 
Yeah. Look, I'm going to say for somebody who's feeling discouraged right now, your days are better than they were back in the old days. Like back in the, like when we were doing this stuff, there was not like a Facebook group for entrepreneurs where you'd say, Hey, does anybody know where I can source this? Or does anybody know a trademark lawyer? Does anybody like right now is such a great time. You have access to amazing resources. We literally were like going through the yellow pages of phone books and like looking things up. And even the internet wasn't fabulous like then, you know? So we did do a lot of driving around. We drove to Montreal. We drove to Toronto. We drove, like, we were driving around and, and, and checking these and, and going to like print shows and things like that. So I get if you're getting discouraged, especially as a solopreneur, because you're going to be, um, you know, you're going to be getting, you're, you're going to have obstacles along the way. But really, I always say your network is your net worth. So make sure you're listening to podcasts like Emily's and, and learning from other entrepreneurs who have done it before, you know, and, and join groups and join. Because sometimes also you just, when you're all on your own, if you're feeling down and def- Inflated and defeated. Like, at least for me, I had other partners who'd be like, We got this, Julie. I know you're having a bad day, but we can do this. We had we could build each other up when one of us was, you know, feeling down. And I, I think the solopreneur journey can be a very lonely one. So please, yeah, I my best advice is your network is your net worth, and make sure that you're you're tapping in, you're going, you get a mentor, you're in um like a peer group, uh, and you're you're connecting, you're connecting, connecting, connecting yeah, all the time. Definitely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah definitely. I was in a. Um, and I, I guess they would call it a human accelerator program called TKS. And they said that a lot too. Your network is your net worth. And that's a very important saying, I think, to ingrain into you. Um, you don't always have to do it by yourself. Uh, you can find someone else who knows how to do what you need to do and have them maybe teach you or um, show you the beginnings of how to start doing that thing. I totally agree. I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Like you can go and find templates to things. Like if you're doing a shareholders agreement, you can find a template online now. If you're doing a business plan, if you're doing anything like that. And I know for me, I have a group, there's six of us and it's like peer mentors are all my age. We're all kind of do the same stuff and we provide great support for each other. And we're very sharey. We share all our media contacts. We share if we've done a pitch deck that somebody else might find helpful. Like I'll share my press page with anyone. If they're like, Oh, I'm trying to do a press page. I don't know. I'm like, use mine. Here's mine. Obviously make it yours, but you know, use this template. So, you know, people do want to, women do want to, you know, raise each other up. That has been my experience. You know, that has very much been my experience and it's a wonderful community to be a part of. Speaking of networks, uh, you met two of your co-founders at the University of Waterloo, correct? Correct. You're in completely different departments. How did you meet up? Right. Okay. So one of the one of the partners was my sister. So of course I met her when I was 18 months old and she was born. Um, and then the other two were okay. So one of them. She, I was actually her dawn in residence. So that's like an RA. So I managed a residence hall with a bunch of fresh, we call them fresh here, freshmen. And uh, I was in third year. She was in first year. So we met that way. And then we ended up just becoming great friends. And then the other one, 
it was also a dawn. We are both dawns or RAs together. So we had met that way. And then we all just, you know, as the years went on, just became great friends. And then, yeah, so like we would have like parties and my brother would come up and party with us. And he met my friend, Julie Ellis, and then they hit it off and they got married. And then uh, my other friend ended up, my uncle, I have a young uncle. He's only a couple of years older than me. And he was like, he's more like a sibling and you know, would come and party with my friends and he met my other friend and married her. So there we go. <laughs> Big family affair now. Yeah. Awesome. Very close, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it all takes work. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so I would say if you're going to university, maybe don't just stick with clubs that are directly related to your major and branch out a little bit to meet new people. Um, I think that is a really important thing to say because yeah, like that's, I think like for me, I was always that kid, you know, who, who did all the things. So, you know, I was a Don and I ran the, you know, uh, student government. And I did like, I did all, all the things and in all of those organizations and all those clubs and all those little interests, I met so many neat and diverse people. And that's what makes the world exciting. Like if I was always just hanging out with the people in my program, you know, it's important to get out there. And, um, and I know sometimes that's like, you know, that was kind of easy for me. I am an extrovert. I get that. Um, and, you know, that's okay. There's all sorts of different kinds of leadership. I know some, some of the best leaders I know are introverts. Like, don't think that you have to be a certain way. There's no perfect way to lead. Um, but I will say like my friends who own businesses and they're like, oh, I just don't like getting out there. And I'm like, I, I know, but you know, I think it is important to, to be visible, like to our point earlier, Emily, like it is important to be visible. So, you know, I think we all need to challenge ourselves in some ways. I often say, Hey, tell yourself if you're going to go to one networking event a month, or you're going to do one meetup a month, do challenge yourself to do a little something or say, Oh, I'm going to ask somebody if I can be a guest on their podcast, even if it makes you uncomfortable, because you know what? I always say this entrepreneurship game is all about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. I've heard that many times before. Yeah. Um, you, you're not going to grow unless you find a way to make yourself uncomfortable. And if, if you're always staying in your same little bubble and you want to yeah. get out there, you have. A yeah. I mean, how that this just doesn't promote growth. Right? right. So, and you know what? That's the fun part too. I mean, I remember thinking at Mabel's, Oh, we're at this point now, now we know what we're doing. And then we'd experience growth and we're like, okay, now we're going to learn new stuff and, and, and expand and, and that sort of thing. And, but that's what, that's the sport of entrepreneurship too, right? If it was, if we just stayed the same and all get a little bit boring, it's the innovation and change that makes it, makes it a real bit of fun. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the last questions that I wanted to ask is, um, well, I, I guess before that, um, I do want to ask when you're tra transitioning from being a small business to a larger business, there's this awkward gap in between, right? How did you traverse that? Okay. Yeah. So, you know what it was, um, I think what we had, to, there's a couple of things. So when, when, when you're starting out, like we were doing everything, right? Like we were doing all of it and it, it can be a bit of a challenge, um, when, when you, when you grow, like our first bit of growth, we hired the worker bees. So that was great. We could hire people to, 
make the labels and work in the warehouse and do that sort of thing. I found the challenge for us, and I think a lot of small business and owners and entrepreneurs feel this way because we all are a little bit control freaks because our businesses are also like our babies and we think we're the one who knows it best and we're in the experts. The problem is eventually you got to hire managers and you have to let them manage. You can't micromanage them. You have to let them work their teams. You got to let them be leaders because if you micromanage them, they will quit or they will not be innovative, or you will put them on eggshells. And that is not good for your business. So you know what, business owners, you need to step away. You need to let people have a say. You have to let them innovate. You have to listen to their ideas and give it proper airtime because that is good for your business. And if you're still running around putting out all the little bushfires in the warehouse every day, then you're working in the business and not on the business. And the only way your business is going to grow is if you're working on it. So you hire people to work in it so that you can take that, you know, bird's eye view and really concentrate on growth, strategy, and and that sort of thing. So I, I think that can be a bit of a um, like you say, it's an awkward transition because it means we have to give up some of the power and give up the reins to other people. And sometimes we're not comfortable doing that, but we have to be. You have to practice and you have to get better at it and you, or you will not have a happy team. You will not have a happy culture. And that is bad for business. How do you cultivate a happy and... Uh innovative culture within your company that's something that yeah 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 that's i think that's a great question because it's something that we're absolutely passionate about i think the one is about um not micromanaging to my point um i think great leaders create more leaders i don't we don't hire people like I don't hire people who are going to follow me around and tell me how great I am. I have hire people who are smarter than I am, who have skills that I don't have. I always say, if I'm the smartest person in the room, I got to find a new room. Like you want, I want people like that who are challenging themselves, um, challenging us. You have to give them time to innovate. So, you know, with our IT team, we try to make sure we, we carve out time a couple of days a month where they just get to play and they just get to innovate and they just got to get to, because then they, then they're more entrepreneurial. And if people are entrepreneurial in their job, they have skin in a game and they, and they feel good and they, and they want to succeed and they want to see the company succeed. And that's great for your bottom line. And it's great for your culture. I also, um, we're very committed to our core values. We have created, you know, um, a list of core values and we hire and fire by them and we hire people. We integrate it into interview questions so that we know what kind of people we're hiring. Um, and, and cause you know, I could train anyone to make labels, but can I train them to be a team player? Can I train? I mean, we do stuff of course, but our core values are really, really important. And, and you know, they focus all around like a lot of things like inclusivity and diversity, being innovative of being the best, like making our customers, wowing our customers, like all of these things that are just part of the Mabel's Labels brand. And, and really, you know, our core values aren't just hanging on a wall somewhere. We really integrate it into everything we do at Mabel's Labels and every decision we make. Would you say that attitude is more important than uh, hard skills, like knowing how to make a label? Yeah. You know what? It really is like, honestly, because people always say to me, Julie, how do you do it? You got those six kids when, you know, you had, you went through the autism stuff with him and, and you guys built a business. And I will tell you my secret sauce is my attitude. 
honestly, I just, I don't take myself so too seriously. My kids are okay. The business is good. You know, um, I just, I, I don't like, I, I just don't get myself too, too worried about things. I, I try not to care what people think. Like if you come to my house and it's a mess, I'll be like, yes, of course it's a mess. I have six kids. I'm okay with that, you know? So I think the secret sauce is, uh, is around that. And, and I also really try not hard not to complain. I'm not a complainer mostly because I don't want to hear my kids complain. And I always think this parenting gig is all about the role modeling. And I also just find complaining, not helpful. Like I've never said I'm tired and a pet appears and says, have a nap on me, you know? (laughs) So if I'm tired, I have to make changes or, you know, if I feel like I'm spending too much time in the office, well, I'm the author of this book, you know, I need to shift things around. And that's on me to do better prioritizing. So you know what? That's um, attitude. Attitude is is going to to do it to do it for you. You know, and and like I said, we can teach, we can teach, we can train in a lot of in a lot of things. Um, but it, it is your attitude. I see with my kids the attitude that's going to get them far. Definitely. Yeah. Does it ever get hard balancing the work life balance, um, especially with six kids like that? For sure it does. Yeah, for sure. It comes with challenges. Um, but like I said, I feel like I feel like I do it okay. And a lot of the time it's because I keep my standards pretty low. Like if the kids have hot dogs for dinner two nights in a row, I certainly don't beat myself up for it. If they end up having to be on their screens a little longer than I would have liked because I have a deadline. Again, I, I gave up mom guilt four kids ago. Like it's no big deal, especially through COVID and everything. These are not optimal times. Everybody's doing the best and feeling guilty isn't, isn't a proactive or helpful feeling. So, you know what, if we have to suck it up and, and, you know, like I say, have craft dinner, so be it, um, or order, do take out a little more often than I like, that's okay. That's all right. We'll go through it. Things will get back to normal again. And, uh, just, just not carrying the, the guilt is, is so freeing, you know, cause you know, a lot of moms talk about mom guilt and it weighs you down and it's useless. So I would hope that anyone listening, I, you know, just please, if you're feeling guilty and you're feeling torn all the time, make changes and, uh, and and try to free yourself of that because it's, it's not helpful. I think that's a very important message to get out there. It's not always on the mom to do work in the house. Um, other family members can take on some of that as well. Absolutely. You know it. That's right. And you know, I, I, that is so true. Like families are everybody's got a pitch in it's a community in and of itself so yeah it doesn't just follow mom the unfortunate thing is that we know we know through research we know through studies we know um that women are still carrying the the uh the the, the load the emotional load the physical load of parenthood and how and homes will get more democratic um, as time goes by but right now women are still carrying a lot of that the load in in the house and, and we need to make sure that we're you know making sure our families are pulling their weight it's not all on us definitely um so my last little question for you is um if there's one thing that you would do like if, if you had to restart your business all over again What's something that you would change about it? That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure I would do anything extremely different. I, um, you know, I always say there, there are no mistakes, only lessons. And we certainly learned a lot of lessons and, and grown through that and made changes. Um, I think at first, 
you know, when we would have equipment fails or, you know, problems like the service guy couldn't come around and we're trying to get the labels out the door. I remember thinking it would be kind of cool if I just had something on a shelf that I could put in like, you know, somebody orders it and I just pull it off a shelf. But because we're so highly personalized, it meant, you know, we don't, we can't fill our order like by just pulling something off the shelf. Now, I used to say that, but now I actually realize something very cool about our company. And that is like a lot of companies that do have stuff on the shelves have a lot of money tied up in inventory. I don't because I buy the material, the person buys their labels before we make it. And we know our sales cycles now. We know camp season, what it's going to look like. We know what back to school season is going to look like. We know our cycle. So we can figure out how much material we're going to need to make the labels over the next little while, which means our money isn't all tied up in inventory. And that's pretty cool from a finance perspective. That's definitely very cool. I like that. Um, I remember when, whenever you go into a gift shop, there's, there's always these cups that have people's names on it. Um, but only so many people get a cup. Uh, my one friend, her name's Alice, never got a cup because there's not a lot of people named Alice. Well, you, you make a good point. You make a good point. I can tell you, parents with children who have like less common names love Mabel's labels because <laughs> their kids yeah. they can finally see their names in print, right? That's that's very important, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be here with us today. I've learned a lot about you and your company, and I really enjoyed hearing your story. Oh, Emily, thank you so much for having me. That was really a, a great conversation. You asked great questions, and I'm so glad we were able to connect. Yay. <laughs>